God in his mercy may move in his time and his ways to bring many, many people into the kingdom of God. But how would you like to become a more successful evangelist? How would you like to become uh, someone who can reach more people with the gospel of Jesus? How would you like to become more effective in gospel preaching? Well, this morning, I'm going to give you one of the great tips of successful evangelism. It's so simple, you won't believe it. It's so difficult, you will be tempted to avoid it. I can reduce this one tip to one word, optimism. The optimistic evangelist will always be more successful and effective in evangelism than the pessimist. And immediately you want to say to me, rubbish, it's all a matter of God's sovereignty. And others will want to say to me, well, that rules me out. I'm, I'm not an optimist. I haven't got that kind of personality. And, but my pessimistic friend, take heart. God's sovereignty works through human endeavour and the world of modern positive psychology will come to your help and assistance because the father of positive psychology, Professor Martin Seligman, has written a book called Learnt Optimism. It's something you can learn, which can teach you how to change from being a pessimist to being an optimist. And he argues it's important that we must make this change because in life, optimists are winners and pessimists are losers. <laughs> in any area of life, in every area of life, he gives statistical evidence that shows that optimists achieve more are more effective, are more successful than pessimists. Sport, selling, leadership, military, politics, you name it, the optimists win and the pessimists lose. And I actually have no doubt that his arguments hold true for evangelists as well. Seligman has only found one area of life, only one, in which pessimists beat optimists. The pessimists have a better perception of reality. <laughs> Their predictions are much more likely to come true. They are considerably more rational than optimists. Now that's a paradox, isn't it? Pessimists will see the world accurately and their chances of success, well, they know are slim, and in fact, they are slim. <laughs> the optimists see the world inaccurately, and their chances of success are very great. Though, not really, yet effectively. So Seligman effectively argues that it's irrational optimists who are the winners, and what we need to do is to be trained in irrationality. We've got to be trained in this irrational optimism so as to we will maximise our effect in life. Now, friends, while optimism is a better way to live, irrationality is not. However, the Bible gives us a basis for rational optimism. The Bible includes what Seligman omits. The Bible includes God, 
the sovereign Lord and ruler of the universe who controls our present and our future. And this sense of rational optimism runs all the way through our reading today from Romans 5. It's a a great passage on the consequences of justification, of love, of peace, of, of hope, and particularly of joy. But it's all based in fact and reality. The fact and reality of the justifying work of God seen in the gospel of the crucified, risen Jesus. So look at the three joys and see then their basis. The three joys that we have. It's not all together possible to determine if the joys are being described that Christians have or prescribed that Christians should have. Whether we are reading of our joy or commanded to rejoice depends upon textual variance and subjunctives, which, of course, you all know about in the early verses of chapter 5 of Romans. And if not, I'm sure will be explained to you someday. Not today by me. <laughs> but either way, because I don't need either explanation, either way it shows that the Christian life is not to be one of dull, dreary struggle. Evangelism is not to be seen that way, intent on keeping the faith in the face of all opposition and all likeliness and predictability of failure because it's against all rationality that we could ever see anybody converted. Christianity is meant to be lived in joy, in boasting, in in exaltation, We've just won the grand final. We can't keep it to ourselves. We have to shout and joyfully declare the victory that we've won. Our representative, our substitute has for us. There are many words in the Bible that we as a a feeling generation read emotionally when they're not really. For example, love and peace may have emotional overtones and characteristics to them, but they're not primarily emotional. But joy, ah, joy is thoroughly emotional. We are to rejoice. We are to be glad. We are to exult. We are to be excited. We're even to boast. We're to glory. That is the word that we hear. We celebrate and cheer and delight And here in Romans 5, you see, the word joy, rejoice, occurs these three times. Firstly, there's joy in the hope of glory in verse 2. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, we've obtained access to the grace in which we stand. Like all humans, we're sinners, standing in this world before and under the condemnation of God. But now... Through Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, Christians no longer stand under condemnation, but in the grace of God. Under the generosity of God, we stand under the banner of mercy and pardon and forgiveness. For the Lord's death, by his death, we're justified. He now looks upon us as if we have not sinned. And verse 2 says, standing in this gracious state of God's mercy, We rejoice. What do we rejoice in? Why, the hope of glory. That's what we're rejoicing in. For we're looking forward to the time when we will share the glory of God, seeing him face to face in all his wondrous glory. We've not arrived, 
not yet. We're still looking forward, looking forward with hope, with eager expectation, with certain assurance to something yet greater to be revealed and that expectation fills our heart with joy. Living without hope is deadening to the human spirit. But what do our fellow society and citizens hope for? What can we look forward to without this gospel of Jesus? We just look forward to this weekend or the next, to to this party or that wedding, to the the birth of the next child or to them finishing their education. Parents are looking forward to their children leaving home, having spent so much time looking forward to them coming. What can pessimistic humans look forward to but in reality... As pessimists, we understand reality. What do we look forward to? Getting old, getting sick and dying. Our society is riddled with hopelessness. But that's realistic. That's the realistic future of our people as we medicate ourselves into stupor, as we amuse ourselves by it to death, as we abuse ourselves with the addictions of gambling and pornography and alcohol and work, anything anything that could possibly break through the dreariness of modern materialism. Mr Seligman, you see, is right. He notices that the optimists do better, even though they're irrational. He teaches us, therefore, how to trick our brains into being irrational and so happier, happier in our rational, meaningless existence. But in the risen Lord Jesus Christ, we're not those who are to be pitied as living without hope or as living with false hopes, but we're those who rejoice for we know that one day we will share in nothing less than the glory of God itself and himself. And not only that, so wonderful is the grace in which we now stand So certain and assured is the future that we're looking forward to. So marvellous is the glory that is to be ours that our second joy is in our suffering. Look at verse 3. Not only that, or more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Now, at first glance, this seems absurd. How can you rejoice in sufferings? Surely you should be weeping and mourning and grieving in in your sufferings. I mean, it makes it sound like optimists are even better at being masochists. But let's get beyond the first glance and see what God is saying to us here. For suffering will come to us all at some time in our lives. It's an inevitability in this fallen world. It will come to Christians in particular, especially being evangelists. But knowing that we do not stand as the condemned, knowing that we stand in the grace of God, knowing the hope of glory that we now live in, knowing the joy that it brings to our hearts, we face the world of suffering. We face our own suffering, not as defeated, as beaten, as lost, nor as if the world is suddenly out of control, nor as if evil is the winner. No, none of that. No, we face the world of suffering and we face our own suffering in the light of the cross and the resurrection in the light of the grace of God and the hope of glory. And facing it like this, 
we can rejoice in our sufferings for we know what God, our sovereign ruler and Lord, is doing for us and doing to us and in us. Verse 3, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope doesn't put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We're not in some crazy, random, meaningless existence where it's just bad luck that you suffer. Or if you suffer more than the person beside you, that's even worse luck. No, we're in God's world as his people that he is transforming into his likeness of his son, into his glory. Suffering mustn't dishearten or discourage Christians, especially the evangelist, as if there is no hope for the future, but all is lost. Church statistics, numbers are going down. No one's really interested. No one wants to hear. Nor do we have to leap into the denial of irrationality, of pop psychology, the power of positive thinking and the like. Nor into the denial of the reality of suffering, like the health and wealth and cargo cults of the prosperity gospels that you see in megachurches. As if I'm not sick and suffering, as if God's people would never suffer because God never wants his people to be sick, which is why the apostles are still alive today. Of course, of course we suffer. And some of us more than others suffer. But suffering will not defeat us. Suffering will not demoralise us. We do not lose heart, says the apostle Paul, the great evangelist. We know who is in control and he is working his purpose out for our good. When I go to the dentist, I know he's going to hurt me. He will cause me deep pain and I'm not just talking about his bill. (laughs) I go willingly. Why do I go willingly? Because I trust three things. One, he's completely in control. He's a competent dentist. Two, he's working for my good. And three, the final outcome will be better. It always hurts me. He always hurts me. But my faith in him never wavers. God is at work and he's better than my dentist. God is at work and he's not just in my teeth. God is at work on us and his work will continually strengthen us, enable us, preparing us for the glory that he's bringing us to. And the sufferings of this present world are nothing to be compared with the glories that are yet to be revealed in us. Here's the testing of any philosophy of life. What does it do with suffering? Not just in theory, but in reality. Atheistic, materialistic hedonism, that is Australia, Sydney, can't cope with suffering. We medicate, we anaesthetise, we blame SCOMO, we psychologise, we even abort, we will euthanise, but we won't cope with suffering because the aim and goal of life is happiness. What nonsense our society is living with. But because as a society we don't know God, we don't acknowledge God to be God, we don't love God, we don't want God. Here's the third joy of the Christian in this passage. Down verse 11, it says we rejoice in God. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. As long as we're living in rejection and rebellion against God, we will not love God like God or even want God. 
The great American atheist philosopher from New York, Thomas Nagel, wrote, it isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief, it's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. Rarely do you see an atheistic philosopher being as honest and as desperate and pathetically sad. But like lovers who get excited at the very glimpse of their beloved in the, in the traffic, like the old true friends who, who look forward to catching up with each other, Christians rejoice in God himself. He doesn't make us recoil in guilt and horror. He's not the eternal policeman trying to catch us out. He's not the in-laws that we have to endure because some idiot relative married them. He's not the crashing bore that we want to ignore and hope that he doesn't see us. God is our greatest pleasure and joy. He's our father that we love to spend time with and look forward to meeting in glory, who loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us. We're no longer enemies of God, but reconciled friends of God. We're no longer running away, avoiding, resenting, hating the very mention of the word God. We rejoice in him. And all this joy in our hope, in our suffering, in God himself is not irrational, but profoundly rational. It's not some positive thinking of irrational optimism, but it's based upon the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. For look at the basis of the argument that you have here in Romans 5. It's about the past, it's about the present, and it's about the future. Most of the basis for our joy is that it happened in the past. Because of what Jesus did in the past, dying for our sins and rising again, we are now justified. Peace with God is now ours for the taking. We have access into the grace of God. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we also have obtained grace, access to by faith into this grace in which we stand. That's why we have such joyous hope, friends. That's why we have such confidence for the future, such assurance of our salvation. It's because we know what God has done for us in the past. We know that his grace will never turn our sufferings into condemnation. We will never be put to shame because we know God's love. Verse 5, and hope doesn't put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. When the Holy Spirit came upon us at the day of Pentecost, he poured the love of God into our hearts. For he opened all our eyes to see what God has done in Christ. Verse 6, for, gar, because, for. Notice the close connection between verses 5 and 6. It shouldn't be a new paragraph in our Bibles, but we'll have to explain that to publishers one day. Verse 6 is explaining verse 5 while we were still weak at the right time Christ died for the ungodly because this shows God's great love for us in that while we're still sinners that's the love the Holy Spirit has given to us the knowledge that while we were still sinners Christ died for us this is the great demonstration of his love Christ's death for the ungodly 
Christ's death for me. So our future is assured because God's actions in the past. You see the logic of it in verses 9 and 10. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. In these verses then you can see the present affecting. The past affects the present. Being justified is not something that only happened in the past. It's the present stage in which we now find ourselves. So notice verse 9 again. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. Not just in the future, not just in the past. Now I am justified. Now, verse 10, we have been reconciled. Because of the past actions of Jesus, we are now justified. We have nothing to fear in God's just wrath. And so can rejoice in the coming glory. We can rejoice in God. We can even rejoice in our sufferings. For we're no longer his enemies, but his friends. We are reconciled and so rejoice not only in our hope of glory, but even in our present sufferings. For we know he's at work in us. But the basis of this joy is also the basis of our future unless we've let the new perspective rob us of our assurance of salvation, we know what the future holds for us. For Jesus not only died, but also risen, seated at the right hand of God in all power and authority. So we know that the coming day of wrath and judgment will be the day of salvation and glory for us. And it's in our knowledge of what the future holds that we whom he loves so much as to die for us, that we who have been justified and reconciled by his death will be saved, will be saved by his risen life when he returns in his Father's glory to gather his people to himself. That's why we rejoice in hope. That's why we rejoice in our suffering. That's why we rejoice in God. We know God, our Father, is at work in us producing this transformation. Friends, Do you really rejoice in the gospel like this? For this passage is the great basis for the optimistic evangelist. It's not irrational. It's thoroughly rational. But it's not negative. It's not fearful. It's not thinking, well, the future, well, no, this couldn't work, this couldn't work. It's the confident joy in the present and the future builds on what Christ has done for us, that spills out into everybody everywhere about Jesus. We speak of him. It's why we will go out into King Street, why we will go over to the university and we will tell strangers of Jesus and invite them to become Christians and to share in the great joy of salvation. You pessimists will never do it. Because you know there's no chance of anyone getting converted by you doing that. You pessimists, it won't work, it can't work, it'll never work. And when you carry that pessimism out of this place into parish ministry, it is a self-fulfilling prophecy about the failure of your evangelistic ministry. You won't preach because rationally 
nobody would ever get converted. So it's best to keep your head down. You see, you will never see people converted if you never call upon people to be saved. You will see people converted if you can't shut up about it. Keep telling people, the next person, the next person, the next person. That's only the people who preach for conversion that see conversions. And that requires optimism. But it's not irrational optimism. It's profoundly rational because God is at work in saving mankind through the death and resurrection of the Jesus. Those intoxicated by the truth of the gospel are the effective evangelists because they overcome their fear and their pessimism by this rational optimism of the joy of Jesus' victory for us. Because the first step that you need is to come to God yourself through this death and resurrection of Jesus. The first step you've got to do is to actually be reconciled to God yourself, lest having preached to others, you yourself are lost. So let me lead you into this joy of salvation right here and now this morning. Hang on, hang on, the pessimist says. Philip, there's no point evangelising here. We're in more college. They're all Christians. Haven't you woken up to that? Who do you think you are? Who do you think's actually going to become a Christian here this morning? I've no idea. But it won't be the first person converted in Moore College. And there's every chance that as I've talked today, somebody is sitting there thinking, actually, I don't know about this. I've never really experienced the joy of salvation like that. I, I really don't like God. I go through the formulas, but I don't actually rejoice in him. And so I'm going to lead us in prayer. And I'm going to invite you to become a Christian right now in case you haven't become one. And as I lead in this prayer, it's just a basic kind of prayer that you'll find in two ways to live. I'll lead in prayer, I'll pray it out loud and invite you to just pray it quietly in your own heart. But I'm over here all day today in my office down near the mail room over there. If you pray this prayer today, why don't you call by my office sometime during the day and just say to me, Philip, I prayed that prayer, what do I do now? And let's have a talk about it. Let's pray. Dear God, I know that I'm not worthy to be accepted by you. I don't deserve your gift of eternal life and I'm guilty of rebelling against you and ignoring you and I need forgiveness. Thank you for sending your son to die for me that I may be forgiven. Thank you that he rose from the dead to give me new life. Please forgive me and change me that I may live with Jesus as my ruler. Amen. And my friend, if that actually is your prayer, you will be forgiven and you will be changed. So come around the office and tell me about it and let's talk together.